Many, many thanks to every one of you. It is stunning to me, the generosity of this congregation, both uh, financially and with uh, your time to donate time and labor to the various projects that you just heard about and incredible generosity toward the From Here to There vision. It's just been amazing to me, and I can't thank you enough. Welcome to those in the venue, if you're joining us right now. I want to just take a moment and uh, say thank you to the veterans, though, that we have in attendance. I know we have many, many veterans in this church. If you were here before the worship service start started, you probably saw a slideshow going through of many of the veterans that we know of in this church. And uh, we're just so thankful for your service. Uh, thank you for all that you've done for our nation. And uh, we want to recognize you and go give thanks to you today. We have a number of others who are active in the military now as well, and uh, we want to just start off though this morning by praying for them and giving thanks for our veterans. Would you please join me? Father in heaven, we are very grateful today to live in the nation that we do. We have been given so much, and we're talking in the series about uh, those to whom much is given, much is expected. And we recognize that part of what we have received has been because of the incredible generosity and service of our military members here in this church and across our nation. And we give you thanks, Lord, for the veterans who have served uh, during peace times, but also during war times. And we ask, God, your blessing on them. We pray, God, that you would protect them. We know many have brought home traumatic experiences. Many families have been uh, affected oftentimes traumatically by their spouse's experiences in the military and in war particularly. And so we ask God your safety and your blessing on each of these veterans and their families, as well as those who are active military personnel today. God, would you please give peace? Would you give protection and strength to them and to their families? We know that they sacrifice much, and we are very grateful for each of them. May your hand of strength and mercy and peace and sustenance and safety be upon every single one. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Amen. Well, it's so good to see you here today. Man, uh, typically when the church talks about money, people leave. And we have more here. We're in a little four-week series that we've titled... Uh, to whom much is given. Well, we're not really just talking about money. We're talking about this grand idea of stewardship. And that includes money, of course, but it's way, way, way bigger than that. And we talked about it a fair bit last week. Last week's message was critical as a foundational message to everything that we're talking about in these weeks. And the key idea that I really wanted to communicate last week was this. Stewardship determines legacy. The way you steward the time, the talents, the treasures that God chooses to give you determines the impact that you make in this world, doesn't it? What you do with what has been given to you determines impact. And the value of a man or woman's life is not determined by how much they accumulate or how much they achieve, but the value of a person's life is determined by how much it was given away. Your stewardship determines your legacy. 
I saw a beautiful example of stewardship over these past few weeks, and it was reinforced to me this last Wednesday. I get to sit at a Forge men's ministry table on Wednesday mornings. If you don't know Forge, it's a group of maybe 70 guys or so that come together at 6 a.m. here on Wednesday mornings over in the North Auditorium. And Pastor Brian typically gives us a great message. And then we gather together in tables with six or seven other guys, and we encourage each other. We grow in friendship. We pray for one another. And this past week, I noticed that one of the guys on our table continued to write in this journal. And I heard the, this story, though, that a number of weeks before, our table leader, a man named Hyrule Rosa, who's a wonderful table leader, he gave his gift to another guy at our table named Jamie. And Hyrule, well, one of the things though, that he does each week is he brings his journal to church and to his devotional times and to Wednesday Forge Group, and he writes in the journal little spiritual learnings though, that he might have from any given message. And he decided to give a similar journal to his friend Jamie at our Forge table. And I learned about that, and I asked Jamie last week if I could see his journal. And with a huge smile, he showed it to me. And I said, man, look at that, Jamie. That is awesome. What a great journal. And he said, no, Adrian, look inside. Look, look what Hyrule wrote to me inside the journal. And inside the journal was maybe a three-sentence note to Jamie that said something to the effect of, Jamie, it's so great to be at the same forge table as you. I love learning with you. I'm so grateful to grow with you in Christ, your brother Hyrule. And, uh, I mean, J Jamie could not hide his excitement if he tried. He said, can you believe he wrote that to me, Adrian? to me he wrote that to me that's amazing isn't it amazing adrian yeah jamie it is amazing because here's a man who is a really really busy man he's a young family he's an executive in town i mean and yet he chose to steward his time to write a note a little bit of treasure to buy a journal and a talent to give the gift of encouragement to another man. That's it. It's that kind of thing, little bit by little bit, over time, built up over years, that determines legacy. Stewardship determines legacy. We need to embrace that and live into it and ride it until we die. That was last week, and that's, again, a foundational message for this series as a whole. Uh, you can find that at Carnegie Free if you haven't yet had an opportunity to listen to it. Today is on beating greed. Last week, becoming stewards. Today, beating greed. And I want to tell you as well, we begin, uh, you, you can. <laughs> we, we all can. This is for all of us, every single one of us in this room, every single one of us on stage. And we can actually beat greed. Uh, greed can relate to our knowledge, it can relate to our time, but most frequently it relates to our money and the things that money buys. Here's a simple definition. Greed is the excessive, and I would dare say sometimes insatiable, desire to get what we do not have and to keep what we do have. These two parts. It's an excessive and sometimes insatiable desire to keep, to say, it's mine, dang it, I earned it, get your stinking hands off of it, it's mine. It's, it's that. And it's also this insatiable desire to get what we do not have. I don't have it, 
I see that my neighbor does, I covet it, I'm going to get it. It's that. And it becomes a bottomless pit that all of us can fall into because it is related to this thinking that we all fall into that stuff will somehow satisfy our longing hearts. I wonder, let me get a quick uh, poll here. Has anyone been to the Big Apple recently? Okay, a number of you. I'm a fan of the Big Apple. I like going there with my kids, except for the arcade. Not a fan of the arcade. Because first I would need to go to my bank to get a loan before going to the arcade. You go to the arcade, and what do your kids want? They want to get these little cards through which they have no idea how much money they're spending, and through which perhaps they could gain a certain number of tickets. And through a certain number of tickets, if they perhaps spend $100 on video games, they'll be able to buy a little plastic Frisbee that's worth a dollar. And that little plastic Frisbee will satisfy their longing hearts. It will give them this deep sense of happiness for 2.3 minutes. Adult examples could be shared as well. Greed is this bottomless pit which exhausts us in this effort to fill needs for happiness without ever reaching satisfaction. And we think that if I just acquire more, it will add up and it will gift me what I want, but it rarely gives the value that it promises. I noted last week that money just doesn't deliver on its promises. The things that we buy do not tend to deliver on what they promise. It was perhaps the wealthiest man of the 20th century, John Rockefeller, who was famously asked, how much money is necessary to make a man happy? What was his response? Just a little bit more. That's how much. Just a little bit more. The Zogby Group recently conducted a large poll in which respondents identified greed and materialism as the number one most urgent problem in American culture today. In a 2014 Vanity Fair poll, 78% of Americans disagreed with the famous Gordon Gecko Wall Street quote, greed is good. 78% disagreed, only 19% agreed. A recent poll of economist readers asked, were asked, what is the deadliest sin? And greed ranked number one by a long shot. But surprisingly, though everyone thinks that greed is a terrible problem, nobody believes that it's their problem. There's another study that was done by the British Broadcasting Channel, which interviewed uh, English folks, Brits, on the seven deadly sins. And it asked these two questions. Which one of these seven deadly sins have you committed in the last month? And which of these seven deadly sins have you ever committed? And in answer to both of those questions, Brits admitted to being lazy, and lustful at times, and envious, and what are the other ones? Angry, all of those. But seventh out of seven to both of those questions was greed. Other people struggle with it. It's the biggest problem, but I don't struggle with it. Now, fortunately, that's only something that Great Britain has to deal with. 
Tim Keller wisely writes, one of the greatest authors on the scene today, wisely writes this, even though it's clear that the world is filled with greed and materialism, almost no one thinks it's true of them. Greed has a way of hiding itself from the victim. Can I get a witness? It's sneaky. It's just sneaky. Like, when I look in the mirror, I don't see Scrooge looking back at me. And yet, I know that I can struggle with this right in here. And all of us can. It can be a battle well, within our hearts. It's sneaky because it's so easy to justify. I think all of us can point to a time that we were generous. We can say that I put this money in the offering bag or I uh, served at a soup kitchen once in fourth grade. So surely I'm not greedy. Like, it's just really, really easy to justify this one. I'd like to suggest today that we actually begin to win the battle against greed by simply admitting that all of us can be greedy. Winning the battle against greed starts with admitting, starts with admitting I can be greedy as well. If you want to beat greed, the beginning is identifying that there really is a victory that could be won. There's a fight that has to be fought, and this applies not just to someone else I'm thinking about. This can apply to me as well. Last week, well, we talked about uh, selfishness as being like perhaps the primary roadblock to a life of stewardship. We all want to steward our time and our talents and our treasures, but go back all the way to the very beginning of time, the very beginning of creation. People have struggled with selfishness. That, yes, God, you've given me this, but I want this. I want to tell you that I intentionally chose the more sanitized word last week. We would all admit to selfishness, but many of us do not want to admit to greed. But whether you call it greed or selfishness, all of us can wrestle with this one at times. It goes all the way back to the beginning, and the fight begins right here. Open, me, uh, open with me, if you would, to First uh, Timothy chapter 6. Both here and in the venue, if you brought your Bibles with you, or if you use your phones or a tablet, that's fine. You click to First Timothy chapter 6. We'll also find these passages on the screen, but there's something powerful about reading along with them in the Scriptures. And you'll see the way that I kind of wrote, I kind of marked up, this passage along the way as we unpack it. This is the one passage well we're going to look at today. 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting at verse 6, and then we're going to go all the way to verse 19, skipping a short section in the midst of it. This is the Apostle Paul, who is writing to his young mentee, Timothy. And uh, the Apostle Paul is getting old, and he's passing on the church to his young disciple, Timothy. And as he's getting old, he's reminding Timothy that this is something that we all can struggle with. And you have to remember... In Paul's background was a lot of greed. He was a very greedy man in many, many ways, but then he encountered the resurrection of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ that God gave himself for Paul transformed his life, and he realized that if God is such a giver to me, I can be a giver to others. Totally changed his life. So he's given these instructions to his disciple Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, starting at verse 6. It goes like this. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich 
fall into temptation and a trap, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Maybe you learned that passage as a kid in the King James Version, and it said there, the love of money is the root of all evil. That's inaccurate to the original language. Really, this is accurate, well, what I just read. There's all different kinds of roots to all different kinds of evil in the world, isn't there? But one of them is greed, okay? So that's what it's saying here. The love of money is a root, not the only root, but a root to all different kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered. Here's why. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. Look at verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Let me suggest first from this passage that uh, greed undercuts our stability in life. The love of money undercuts our stability in life. If you've played uh, basketball or football, you know what an undercut is, right? In basketball, if you go up for a layup and someone doesn't give you space to land and they undercut your knees, it's like so scary. Am I going to lose my knees in this moment? Or if you played football, perhaps you've had the experience of having a, a chop block, which is now illegal, I understand, in football because it ruins people's knees. It's an undercut which takes them out of the game. Likewise, if, if you've ever done boxing or if you like watching boxing, an undercut is illegal if it's below the belt. People get penalized for an undercut below the belt. These are illegal because they take people, hear me now, an undercut takes people out of the game. And greed can take people out of the game. It undercuts stability. It's like that. So look at verse 9. You might circle these two statements that Paul makes in verses 9 and 10 like I did up on the screen. Those who want to get rich, circle that fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Plunging people into ruin and destruction, again, it undercuts stability to want to get rich. Okay, look at uh, verse 10. It says, some people eager for money, circle that, same idea, those who want to get rich, Rich, some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and they have pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, let me just pause here and ask have you ever seen this? That someone has been so eager for gaining that they, in effect, wandered from the faith. But they pierced themselves with many griefs in the process. Because all of a sudden they lost their love for God because they were running after something else. Have you seen this? I, I've never seen someone intentionally, I've never seen someone intentionally say, 
I'm putting my Bible down. I'm putting my faith in God down because I am running after money. I've never seen that. What I have seen many, many times in my life as a pastor is this. I've seen people who unintentionally wander from the faith as they've begun to pursue a love of money that became so all-encompassing for them that all of a sudden they woke up one day and they no longer had any interest in this. They no longer had any interest in church. They no longer had any interest in Jesus. They believed that they were self-sufficient in themselves and they had somewhere stepped off the rock of Jesus-centered, Christ-focused stability and stepped into quicksand of love of money. Have you seen that? I've seen that many times. It's heartbreaking to see it. And this is the warning that Paul is giving. What, what, what he's saying here is that anything that we carry through this life has a certain mass about it. And the more anything we carry has mass, the more it pulls us down toward this earth, doesn't it? And there's something about this that just has a lot of mass. Correct? This has a lot of mass. And so it has this effect of this gravitational pull of moving our focus off of the cross. Tragically moving our focus off of the resurrection of Christ. Tragically moving our focus off of sacrifice. And back onto this world. And sadly, many people have pierced themselves with such griefs. This is why Jesus elsewhere literally deifies money. In... Uh, Matthew 6, for example, Jesus says you cannot serve both God and money. What he's doing there is saying these are two rival gods. That if you choose to serve God, then you're not going to serve money. But if you choose, I'm going to serve money, then you're not going to serve God. He deifies it that way because God wants our hearts. But money has a unique ability to grasp our hearts as well, does it not? I know I'm talking to some people today. It, it certainly can for me. It does for all of us. Greed undercuts so much stability and joy that God wants to give us. And, and I just want to warn you as your pastor, nobody believes this will happen to them. Nobody believes it. We are wise to regularly think of ourselves with humility and suspicion that we would recognize the same things that could happen to other people could also happen to us. Greed undercuts stability. And so we beat greed by growing contentment, which leads to gratitude. Beating greed continues with contentment and gratitude. Begins by admitting that I can be greedy too. It continues with this uh, desire for contentment and gratitude. Look again at verse 6. It says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Let me just pause there, and let's read that out loud from the screen together. Just that, that line that I just said. Let's say it all together in the venue and here in the auditorium. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Why? Because we brought nothing into this world, and Lord knows... We can take nothing out of this world. No truer words have ever been written. 
But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. What Paul is telling us here is that if you go after the fruit of the Spirit that we just spent 10 weeks talking about, the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, that becomes godliness. That life is the life of godliness. Pursuing that plus this life of, I'm going to be content with whatever I have. I have more than some people. I have less than other people. But I'm not going to compare to other people because that's a trap that will steal my joy. So I'm going to be content with what I have. And if you have godliness plus contentment, then you have great joy. You have a stability. You, you, you just know that you have a sufficiency. It says great gain. The original word there is sufficiency. Godliness, here's a simple equation to hold on to. Okay, spiritual godliness plus contentment leads you to a sense of sufficiency. Paul understands that if we have Christ plus nothing else, we have a whole lot more than the person who seems to have everything but does not have Christ. Godliness plus contentment equals sufficiency and great gain. I was talking with a friend last week and he said that sometimes he and his wife um, can fall into comparison and they pause as they do so. And they remind each other that we have three healthy kids and a roof over our heads and then gratitude bubbles over. That's so wise. Just to make that decision as a family, that when we start to feel the comparison trap, we're just going to interrupt that. And we're going to pause, and we're going to be content with what we have, and that leads to gratitude. Greed undercuts that kind of stability. Greed also undercuts enjoyment of what we have. Uh, fr friends, the truth is, most of us in America are rich. And we, we probably would be wise just to embrace that. Not all of us, and I don't mean to demean anyone. You might be in a place today, today that you're struggling, and if you're struggling financially, we would want to know that at this church, and we would love to come along your side. We, we, we are here. We, we believe in coming beside people in our church who are struggling. If you're in that spot today, I'm not in any way trying to insult you. But the truth is, most of us in this room, most of us in the venue today, by the world standards, are rich. Consider this. The average size in an American home has doubled in the last 60 years, even as our average family size has been reduced by 50%. If you make $37,000 a year, you're in the top 4% of income earners across the world. You're blessed. If you make $48,000 a year, you're in the top 1% of income earners across the world you're blessed if you have more than one room for your family to sleep in you're blessed if you have more than three outfits most people across the world have three outfits or less if you have more than three outfits I have 30 right you too we're blessed we're rich if you know that you'll have food today and you'll have food tomorrow, you are blessed. Whether you're Republican or Democrat or Independent, we're all fighting about health care in America these days, but do you have access to good medical care? 
If you have good access to good medical care, you are blessed. Relatively speaking, almost all of us are doing really, really well. So why don't we think so? Because comparison is a trap. Just as the Bible says. Comparison is a trap. And it's a thief of joy every time. Like, have you ever noticed that you bought a new gadget? Uh, I bought a new phone some time ago. And then like two weeks after I bought this wonderful iPhone 10, the iPhone 11 dared to come out. And I really liked this phone for about two weeks. And then the new gadget came out, and I, all of a sudden this feels like stale old bread. Anyone else? Okay, I, like, this is ridiculous. It undercuts enjoyment of the good things that we do have. That's why verse 17 says, Command those who are rich, me, you, that's us, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. The book of Proverbs puts it this way, cast but a glance at riches and they are gone. They sprout wings and they fly. Don't hope in riches because they're so uncertain. Nationwide studies show that on average Americans believe that if they just doubled their income, then they would be rich. If they just doubled their income, then they would actually be secure. And countless studies show again and again that if people make 25K, they believe if they made 50, then they'd be secure. If people make 50K, they believe they just made, if they just made 100, then they'd be wealthy. If they made 100, they believe if they made 200, then they'd be secure. Across the board, studies show this. There was even a recent study done at Boston College that evaluate, evaluated the... Um, Attitudes toward money of the wealthiest of the wealthy in the United States. People who have net assets, listen to this, of $25 million or more. And a series of interviews while we're done, very honest, candid, anonymous interviews while we're done with people that had $25 million to $200 million in assets. And on average, they believed that they would be financially secure if they just had 25% more. It's just part of human nature. And so you have to fight against it. They also struggle with a litany of different anxieties, the super rich in America, a litany of anxieties including a sense of isolation, fears for their children, financial insecurity. They worried constantly about keeping the money that they had. One of the wealthiest men in the 1800s, a man named William Vanderbilt, inherited $100 million. And then within seven years, he doubled it became a railroad magnet, and he was worth $200 million. And he was known to regularly say, the care of $200 million is too great a load for any back or brain to bear. There is no pleasure in it. Just ask lottery winners. To which some of us are like, well, I wouldn't mind giving it a try. I could try $200 million. <laughs> Let's put verse 17 up on the screen again. Look at the rest of verse 17 here. It's so uncertain, it sprouts wings and it flies away, so don't put your hope in that. Instead, Paul says, put your hope in, in God. Put your hope in God, who richly provides us with everything that we have, for our enjoyment. 
God is not a miser. God is a giver. And he provides much to us, not that we would need to be misers. Thank you, God. This isn't a guilt message. You don't have to sell all your stuff and go live under a bridge somewhere, okay? That's not this message. He gives us all that we have, that we would steward well what's been given to us, and that we would say, God, would you please help me to live simply? Would you please help me sometimes even to live sacrificially? That I could do more for what you want done in the world. And then would you help me to receive some of what you have given that I would enjoy it? Because God provides for your needs, and he also provides for your wants. He cares about you enough to provide for your enjoyment, and that's okay. There's no guilt in that. There's nothing wrong with enjoying some of what God has given us. But part of the problem is we as a people, we as a nation, we as a world have forgotten the difference between needs and wants, and we just consume constantly, which does nothing for long-term happiness, does it? So we got God, would you please help us to put our hope in you, not in stuff which sprouts wings and flies away. Would you help us to enjoy what you have given, but would you help us to love the giver? We enjoy the gifts, but we love the giver. Taste and see that the Lord our God is good. Enjoy the gifts, but love the giver. I'm going to invite the band up on stage, and I just want to finish up with this final word here. Friends, you can beat this through contentment and gratitude. And we can beat this finally by developing a greater vision for all that God has given us. Sometimes our vision is just too small. Isn't that right? Sometimes our vision for our time is too small. Sometimes our vision for what God might do in our kids is too small. Sometimes our vision for what God might choose to do with the treasures that he's entrusted unto our care is too small. Here's the vision that God would have for what he has given to us. Verse 18, command them who have been given much to do good. Command them to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. We all can point to many, many examples of people who uh, have a lot of wealth and they don't use it well. But the issue is really not, do you have wealth? The issue is, how will you be wealthy? The issue is not, are you rich? The issue is, how are you gonna be rich? What's your vision for the riches that God has already given. And to have a different kind of vision, I mean, when we see the counterexamples of people that I know in this room who've been entrusted with much, with great ability to multiply the wealth that God has given them, and they say, it's not for me, it's for your kingdom, God. Oh my goodness, what they're able to do, it's so profoundly inspiring, isn't it? Yeah, like to see someone who's been given much and they know to whom much has been given, much is expected. It is so inspiring. I see it from people in this room on a regular basis. I had the pleasure of doing a funeral here a few weeks ago for a man named Stan Big. And Stan was given a lot. He had great talents. He was an entrepreneur, and God gave him with an ability to create wealth and 
He didn't just choose to use it for himself. He spent a lot of it on his kids, and that's good. That's good. But he spent a lot of it on building up the youth ministry in this church when it was back at Countryside Christian Church. He said, we don't have a good enough youth program here. We need to build it up. And so he did that personally. And he said things like, we need a, a great children's museum here in town. So he was a big, big part of fundraising and building into the Carney Children's Museum. And he believed in missions. And so he funded missions all over the world. He had a grander vision for what God might do through what God had given. And can I tell you that that memorial was pure joy? <laughs> like everyone around was just celebrating. As we looked at the example of Sue Big and her husband Stan and their generosity to so many people, it's just like, wow, God, would you please take the time and the talents and the treasures that you have chosen to give me for some reason and would you prevent me from using them as a stopper and help me instead to be a conduit of your love that I would have a bigger vision for what you want done in the world a vision for doing good for being generous for being rich in good deeds for laying up future treasure in heaven as you pursue God with all that he has given. May Jesus himself give you contentment. May he give you gratitude. May he give you a grander vision for all that he has entrusted to your care. Amen.